I can, uh, you're well, you know? Yeah, you go ahead. You're the, you're the shepherd. Yes, sir. Are we about ready? Oh, we're streaming right now. Oh, I need to stop chatting then. I need to get down to business. Um, good morning. Uh, welcome to our Sunday School Hour. Good to see you all here uh, and awake. Those of you who were with me uh, last night, I'm barely awake. Um, but this is my friend Sean, and that is our primary relationship, but he's far more qualified than simply being my friend. Uh, he's the Director of Publications for Free Grace International, formerly the director of publications for Grace Evangelical Society for a number of years, longer, yeah, 10 years, 10 years, and I had known the previous two. They did not make it quite 10 years, you know, so um, that was quite the tenure, and he's here to share with us from Scripture today. Uh, so he's been here before. He's not a stranger to you, uh, but I thought I'd introduce him since I get to be here and listen too. So, Sean, thank you. All right. Thank you very much, Josh. All right, great to be here this morning. Um, yeah, we've known, we've, um, yeah, we've been friends for at least seven years, and uh, I just checked this morning, we've been working together for seven years on Free Grace Theology Discussion Group, um, and it's, I really appreciate it, I've just, learned, I've just grown to respect Josh so much, he's, he is one of my friends, he's, he's like my Fortnite girlfriend, but he's my, he's a, he's, if you were at the, if you were at the wedding yesterday, Except he's my Facebook discussion group uh, girl, uh, girlfriend or friend. Um, yeah, we we just need some serious meaty thinking. People need serious meaty thinking because the culture is getting worse. The culture is getting more hostile, and um, we will not stand unless we're well grounded in the Word. And I love just some of the truths that were stated at the wedding. Uh, last night, just some truths that, guess what? As sinners, we are not compatible with each other, even if you're getting married, and you're not even compatible with yourself from three years ago. I love that line. That is so true. We are all incompatible. We're all broken by sin, but hopefully we're all changing too. And I want to talk a little bit about what that changing looks like here, but would you bow with me in in a word of prayer before we start? Heavenly Father, thank you for these brothers and sisters in Christ this morning, thank you for this space and this time that we have to study your word. And I pray, Lord, that uh, it would be like a two-edged sword and it would be like a living thing changing our hearts, changing our minds so that we can better reflect our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Um, After high school, uh, I got into graphic design, and my first job was working for uh, a magazine, and, and ever since then, I've been working for magazines and newspapers my, my, my whole career. And in the last 11 years, I've been working in Christian publication, which has been great. But I loved working in the newsroom. I, lo- I worked in newsrooms in uh, Montreal and in Boston, and it was just, I loved the environment of it. It was just the high-energy environment. I was on the production side. I wasn't a writer at the time. I was on the production side doing typesetting and advertising and stuff like that, but I loved the energy of the newsroom, the, the, the editors and the journalists yelling at each other, throwing out ideas, debating, trying to chase down a lead story, calling up people, getting bad feedback, getting good feedback. I just loved the whole, the whole all aspects of it. The daily 
deadlines. I love I loved high-pressure deadlines. That's how, I, that's how I thrive. Otherwise, I just go limp like a jellyfish. I need just hard deadlines to just keep on pushing me. Um, so I've always loved the news. I was like one of those uh, little kids who'd read a newspaper every day. I got a subscription for myself because I was a reader. I loved reading the newspaper. But have you noticed, I don't know if you guys have noticed this. I definitely noticed this since moving to the States. Um, have you ever noticed the news is really negative? Has anyone, show of hands, have you ever noticed the news is negative? There was a, um, uh, there was a Freakonomics episode that kind of about uh, some scientists who did a study of this. And they found that during the COVID coverage, 87% of all the coverage in national U.S. media was negative, had a negative spin on titles, on, on the stories itself, 87% negative. Uh, internationally, it was 51% negative. But in the States, it was 87% negative. Now, in the news kind of media, newsrooms, one of the kind of things we'd always say was, if it bleeds, it leads, right? If it bleeds, it leads. What does that mean? It means if something is shocking or horrific, you put that on the front page because that's what people are interested in. Everyone wants to, everyone wants to see the very, worst, the very worst news, the catastrophic news. That's what grabs their attention. The news that, hey, Sean had an okay lunch yesterday, not very important. No one cares. Disasters, people love looking at disasters. Their eyes are glued to that. Um, but that does a really bad thing to the news. That does a really bad thing to the news because if the most shocking and horrific events get the most attention, that creates a perverse incentive for newspapers. Because in America especially, newspapers, news is a business. They have to make money. And so the more views they have, the more clicks they have, the more shares they have, the bigger audience that they have, the more they'll be able to attract advertisers who'd be willing to pay for a slice of your attention. So it's in the interest, in, the, in a free market news environment, it's in the interest of newspapers and magazines to accentuate the negative. Even if that's not like the whole story, there's an incentive to accentuate the negative, to make something look horrible, to make something look like it's bleeding and so making it leading because that's weirdly what we want. That's what we want to pay for. And so one of these scientists says, one of these social scientists said human beings, particularly consumers of major media, like negativity in their stories and we think the major media are responding to consumer demand. In other words, if you've wondered why is news so negative, you got to point to yourself. <laughs> Why are you attracted to it? Why are you, it's your demand that's kind of driving this negativity in the news media. You're clicking on it, so they're giving you more of what you want. Um, I was driving south from uh, I was driving from Oklahoma back to my home in Denton, and there was the highway, the 35, their major highway, was just backed up for about 30 minutes, and I was like, oh my goodness, there must have been a horrible accident. And when we finally got to the point, it turned out there was an accident on the other side of the highway. Our highway was totally clear, but everyone had just slowed down to look at the accident, creating a huge traffic jam. Why do we do that? Why are we so focused on the negative? Why does that attract us so much? Um, the study goes on to, another study goes to, goes to say we have something called a negativity bias in our thinking. 
to quote a scientist, we humans have a propensity to give more weight in our minds to things that go wrong than to things that go right. So much so that just one negative event can hijack our minds in ways that can be detrimental to our work, relationships, health, and happiness. So what's the negativity bias? I don't know if you've recognized this in yourself or not, but we tend to remember traumatic experiences more than positive ones. Everybody apparently has had a traumatic childhood, you know, basically everyone. Everyone has had a toxic relationship. Everyone has had a toxic work environment. We just remember these negative events more than the positive ones. Um, we always remember insults more than we do praise. If someone insulted us and really kind of dug into us, we'll, never, we'll always, always hold it as a grudge against them. But all these little praises we get, it's almost like we filter those out and we just focus on the negative. Why is that? We think about negative things more frequently than positive ones, and we respond more strongly to negative events than to equally positive ones. When you look back at your life, at the things that shaped your life, probably you're going to remember the bad things that shaped your life rather than the good opportunities that you had. And that's not true to reality, but that is how we think for some reason. We have this negativity bias. I don't know if you recognize that in yourself. For myself, for me, I'm a, I'm a world champion worrier. I'm a, I'm a recovering worrier. I'm sure my, I consider that a mental attitude sin, and the, and the Lord is changing my mind slowly on it. But I, I tend to ruminate. Have you guys ever ruminate on things? If you've had a bad conversation, you just think about it for days afterwards about all the snappy comebacks you could have had at that moment. You're in the shower and you're just thinking, oh, I should have said this. Oh, I should have said that. And then like three or four days later, you just think of the perfect comeback, but it's way too late at that point. Have you ever done that? Have you ever ruminated? That's part of our negative, negativity bias that we have. And so what's really, I, know, I, find, I find all of this interesting. We have this deeply rooted in ourselves, all these biases deeply rooted in ourselves. And um, the question is, why? Why are they there? And what can we do about them as Christians? Um, I think Paul ultimately would call all of that the flesh. It's this complicated term that he uses for multiple things in Scripture. But the flesh... Um, Fleshly thinking can just be about, the flesh can just be about the sum of unregenerate humanity. Everything that you were apart from Christ, everything you are apart from Christ, the flesh, the world, all these things that are hostile to the Lord, the flesh is something that you can dwell on in your mind. And if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Romans chapter 8, verses 1 to 6. Romans chapter 8, verses 1 to 6. And we're just going to go through these six verses, and I think it's going to present us with the biblical alternative or the biblical solution to this negativity bias that we seem to have that the world thinks we're doomed with, but you are not doomed to have that. You can change your mindset. You should change your mindset. In fact, the Bible is very concerned with how you think. Christianity, although the world portrays us as dumb, Christianity is supposed to be a very highly mindset, mind and thinking based religion. We're people of the book. We're people of a very complicated, very sophisticated, very enlightening book. We should be the clearest thinking people on the planet, not, not the dumbest people on the planet. And the Bible is very concerned with how we think. How you think not only determines your eternal destiny because believing in Jesus uh, is thinking, believing is thinking. 
just believing that Jesus gives you everlasting life, that he died on the cross for you and rose from the dead, and he gives everlasting life to believers, if you are persuaded that that is true, then you've believed the gospel and you have everlasting life, and you'll never lose it. You're saved forever. Thinking determines your eternal destiny, but it also determines how you live the rest of your Christian life. Thinking determines. If right thinking comes before right living. So at Romans chapter 8, he starts off by saying, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I'm reading from the New American Standard Version. If you'll remember in Romans 7, Paul described the situation of someone trying to become sanctified by following the law. Romans chapter 7 is basically this great treatise on why that approach is going to fail. Legalistic, legalism doesn't work for salvation, and it doesn't work for sanctification either. If you try to sanctify yourself by presenting yourself with a bunch of laws that you need to follow in your own strength, all that you will do is fail, 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 fail. And what's interesting in Romans 7 is Paul describes this person totally apart from the mention of the Spirit. It's just this person struggling to obey the law and completely failing. And by the end of that chapter, this person described in Romans chapter 7, which I think is Paul's own experience, but it's universalized to anybody who ever tries to become sanctified by the law, is in total despair. That person is in total despair. And he says, who is going to save me from this body of death? And so Paul, I think, there's no chapter, chapter divisions in the original scriptures, of course. Paul starts off with a word of comfort. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Some medieval manuscripts that the King James Version is based on adds a second, uh, a second half to that verse, I think, wrongly. The earliest manuscripts leave it out, I think, rightly. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's really interesting. This word there is katakrima. Can you guys say katakrima? Say it again, katakrima. It means the punishment that follows a sentence. So I can pronounce you guilty. That's the pronouncement. And then I sentence you to a punishment. That's the katakrima. There is no punishment, if you look up in a lexicon, there's no punishment for those who are in Christ Jesus. In other words, how does that answer Paul's kind of uh, struggle in Romans 7? In Romans 7, he shows that the law, whether the Torah or the law written on the heart, whatever the moral demands are, those moral demands are going, you're always going to break them. You're always going to be a sinner. And the law is always going to accuse you of sin, and rightly. We can totally admit that we are. Martin Luther, the great reformer, whenever people would come to him with guilty consciences and they'd say, I'm a sinner, you know, Satan is accusing me of all these sins, Martin Luther would always say, admit it, you are. But here's the second part. You're a sinner, but guess what? You're also justified. God reckons you as righteous by faith apart from your works, apart from all of your sins. And that's what Paul is saying here. There is no punishment for you. There's no condemnation for you. Yes, the law can accuse you, and the law can accuse you rightly because you've probably sinned even this morning, whether in thought, word, or deed. But that's as far as the law can go. It can accuse you, but it can't give you the catechrema. It can't punish you. There's no punishment for those who are in Christ Jesus. When you believe in Jesus, you become united to him. 
in his life and in his death. And through that union, Paul explains this in Romans uh, 6, uh, 6 and, well, in, throughout 6 and 7, you die to the law kind of like the way a widow uh, is, you're freed from the law in the same way that a widow is freed from any obligation she had to her deceased husband. Through your union with Christ in his death and resurrection, you're freed from anything that the law can do to you. So there's no condemnation for you. Instead, you have peace with God. You're justified. You are reconciled to God. Yes, the law can accuse you, but it cannot give you the catechrema. Paul here, I think, is just repeating what John, uh, Jesus said in John 3.18. Anyone who believes in... Everyone knows John 3.16, but here's John 3.18. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. And in John 5.24, truly I tell you, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life, It's a present possession that you have the moment you believe. And here's a future benefit. Will not come under judgment. You'll never be judged for your eternal destiny. That has already been settled. There's no condemnation for you. Will not come under judgment, but is passed from death to life. So there's no judgment, no condemnation. You are in Christ Jesus. And so now Paul continues in verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Scholars argue about what Paul means here by the law of the spirit of life. Maybe is he just for the sake of parallelism? Is this just a synonym for the gospel? Is it just a synonym for the Holy Spirit? I'm not going to wade into those waters. The point is this is a very good thing. You've been set free. You've been, it's a life-giving thing. The Holy Spirit does in you what the Torah or what the moral law written in your heart could never do. And that's why Paul says, for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. What could the law not do? It couldn't justify you. All it could do is just pronounce you guilty. It can never pronounce you righteous. It couldn't give you power to be holy. The law can only tell you what to do. It can't give you the power to do it. Think of it this way. Uh, Most of you pay taxes. Does the IRS, the fact that they pass these laws saying you owe money, does that put money in your bank account? Does that give you the power to pay the taxes that you owe? No, those laws are just a demand. It's up to you to pay the taxes. And it's the same way here. The law can only make a demand, and you need to, it can't give you the power to fulfill the demand. It can just tell you what you owe, but it can't give you the power to do it. So what the law couldn't do, the law couldn't make you alive. It couldn't justify you. It couldn't do any of those things because the material it had to work with was so, so weak. What does it say here? For what the law cannot do, weak as it was through the flesh, it's like our fallen, broken, sinful flesh was weak material. It couldn't do anything with this. In fact, what it did was the opposite, which Paul is going to explain in just a second. What the law couldn't do, God did. What the law couldn't do, God did by sending Jesus in the flesh, in the likeness of sinful flesh. He became human, but Jesus himself was sinless. He became human, and he took on our human flesh, but he himself never sinned. And so I think that's why Paul says, in the likeness of sinful flesh. Lots of people actually accuse Jesus of sin, of being a glutton, glutton, accused of being even demon-possessed, but Jesus was was sinless. He broke the rabbinic laws. 
or the rabbinic interpretations and interpolations of the law, but he himself was sinless. And he came and he died as an offering for sin, and then God condemned sin in his flesh. And so it's almost like what Paul is doing here is he's personifying sin as a deadly power. A deadly power that uses the flesh to tempt us and to kill us. And so God dealt with sin, personified as this power, in its own realm. Since sin was kind of inhabiting the flesh and using the flesh to tempt us and to kill us and to bring us under bondage, God used that own arena by entering into it through Jesus. Jesus became a man, became 100% human, entering into this human realm. And then God condemned sin in Jesus' flesh. He didn't condemn Jesus. He condemned sin in the flesh. And how did he do that? By taking all of the sins that you would ever have committed and imputing them to Christ on the cross. And so all of the sin that would have been on you, God imputed to Jesus on the cross. And by doing that, he paid the penalty of sin and therefore freed you from that penalty for anyone who would believe in him for it. And he did that so that, the, so that the just requirements of the law would be fulfilled. And which requirements are those? And I think there might be two. Negatively, that sin would be punished, and so Jesus died on the cross for your sins. But positively, so that the righteousness that the law demanded would actually become real in your life, that you would actually live a righteous life. But it depends on this in verse 4. So that the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. So there's two ways of walking. And it doesn't matter how old of a Christian you are, how long you've been a Christian in your life, whether just a few years or for many years, there's two ways of walking. You can walk according to the flesh or you can walk according to the Spirit. But what does that mean? How do you do that? Walking according to the flesh, when you're trying under the law, trying to fulfill the law in your own power, it's like you're white-knuckling your sanctification. You're just gritting your teeth, and you're making promise after promise to God, I'll never do that again. Okay, I did it. I'll never do that again, Lord, I promise. Okay, I just did it again. But this time, this promise is for real. Have you ever made promises like that to God and broken them again and again and again? That's white-knuckling your sanctification. That's trying to sanctify yourself in your own strength. The second option is to walk according to the Spirit. But how do you do that? It turns out it's not by white-knuckling your sanctification. It has to do with your thinking. Verse 5. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. The word for mind here is phronema, which means it's not, there's not a direct equivalent in English, but it means your whole mindset, your whole mental attitude, the whole focus of your thought life. If your thought life is set on the flesh, that's a whole mindset that you have. And guess what? Christians can have totally fleshly thinking. You can believe in Jesus for a second for your salvation, and you will have it. You don't need a whole mindset in order to be saved. You don't need a whole lifelong mindset in order to be saved. You just need a moment of faith, of simple trust in Jesus for the salvation that he offers, and you will have it. But now, 
at that moment, your mind doesn't suddenly get renewed. Your mind doesn't suddenly, you don't become a Christian genius two seconds after you believe in Jesus for your salvation. You have all the fleshly habits, all the fleshly mindsets that you had before. And so as a Christian, you can stay totally fleshly oriented. You can stay carnal, as Paul called the Corinthians. You, can, you have to grow out of that. Your mind has to change and be renewed so that you can walk according to the Spirit. I think the lion's share of a pastor's job is to help believers move from being carnal to move to being spiritual, to change your whole mindset. But that takes thinking. That takes deep teaching. That takes deep studying and deep hearing from you guys. It, take, it takes a hunger for you guys to be holy, to be interested, to want to live, to, to please God. But that right living will only come once your mindset has changed and you have some right thinking. And so as Paul goes on to say, those who, uh, set their, uh, for those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. Christians should have a spiritual mindset. And this is kind of difficult. This is a difficult subject for me. I grew up, I'm still technically a Baptist. I've been a Baptist most of my life, and I have a... Uh, most of my Christian life, and I have kind of a struggle with, with that tradition. I've always, I'm always looking over the fence at other traditions, thinking it's greener over on the other side, but I've never really found enough reason to leave it. Um, but we Baptists, I mean, I grew, up, I grew up hearing about the Trinity, but I think for us, the Trinity was really the Father, Son, and the Holy Bible. It wasn't Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we didn't really hear about the Spirit all that much because the Spirit was something that, you know, that's what Pentecostals talk about, and they're crazy. So we're just, you know, for us, it's Father, Son, and then read your Bible. But if you look at Romans chapter 8 and you took your highlighter and you highlighted every single time Paul talks about the Spirit, you're going to find that this whole chapter, which is the Christian living chapter, is filled with references to the Holy Spirit. We have to set our minds on the things of the Spirit, we have to occupy our mind with, with, with him, with his work. And, of course, the Spirit always points us to Christ. So it's like you're, you know, the Spirit is the Spirit of Christ, so you're just occupying your mind with Jesus. And what difference is that going to make? Paul says, for the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. Um, sin always produces death. Sin never produces happiness. Sin always has just deadly consequences. Sometimes it's literal death. Sometimes it's just literal destruction. Um, I, was, I, I have a very close friend who came to faith because his alcoholism at a young age led him in the ER. And it turned out the doctor told him that all his drinking had enlarged his heart. And if, he'd take, if, he'd take another, if he took another drop, he would probably die. And it was only at this friend... This, at that moment, this friend who was numb to the gospel his whole life, at that moment finally was open to eternal things, faced with the deadly consequences of his sin. But even if your sin hasn't led you to that point, every single one of us knows that sin makes you miserable. As believers, you know, even if, 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 if there's short-term pleasure to sin, it destroys your life. There are so many people. I was in an intervention recently uh, with another friend who also struggling with, with uh, alcohol addiction. And, um, but the reason why that came up was because it was destroying his marriage. It was destroying his relationship with his, his wife and his kids. 
Sin has deadly consequences all throughout, all throughout your life. So when your mind is set on those fleshly things, it brings death to your whole experience of life. That's all that sin can do to you. Oh, I heard this great, actually, you know, I heard this great, great testimony from a former drag queen. This guy was a drag queen, and he was living with his boyfriend who was a drug dealer. And he thought he was expressing himself, um, living out his true nature as a drag queen with this drug dealer. And then... And Christians had told him to repent, 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 or go to hell his whole life, and it really never really touched him. But then one day, this little old lady was looking for her, her uh, granddaughter, who she suspect, who knew this drug dealer, and she came to this apartment, apparently, looking for her granddaughter, trying to save her granddaughter. And she confronted this, uh, this drag queen guy, and the way she confronted him was just saying, God... She looked at him and she said, God has so much more for you than this. Which is another way of saying repent. <laughs> but it's kind of a, it's a totally different approach. God has so much more for you than this. And he looked at his life. And I know this guy goes to this, the church that, uh, that I attend. And uh, he looked at his life and he did want more. He was living it with a drug dealer. <laughs> And this little lady was looking for her granddaughter who was, somehow got lost in this network of drugs and stuff like that. And he knew this was, a destructive, this was a destructive life and there had to be more. And that eventually led to his faith in Jesus. Sin is death. But here's the other side of it. But those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit, for the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Isaiah 26.3 reads, You will keep the mind that is dependent on you in perfect peace, for it is trusting in you. The mind set on the Spirit is a life of shalom. It is peace despite, not necessarily prosperity, but it's peace despite the circumstances around you. Because you are trusting in the Lord moment by moment. So the question here is, this all sounds really nice, but what does it mean to set your mind on the things of the Spirit? And I want to give you three, three suggestions, three applications for that. Number one, contemplating Christ. Some people call it occupation with Christ. It means you think about Jesus. It means you think about and you view all of your life in terms of what, who Jesus is and what he has done for you. The more you see Christ, the more you see how he acted, the more you see what he said, the more you see how he loved, the more you think about what he did for you, I think the more that your heart is going to be enlarged with love for him. When I was, uh, first came to faith in Christ, it was because of Jesus. It wasn't because of any... I, I wasn't raised in a Christian family. I wasn't raised in a Christian society. I came to faith in Christ because I started reading about the words of Jesus and the actions of Jesus and the life of Jesus. And there was just something about him that was so fascinating, more fascinating to me than any other person I'd ever read about. And the more I contemplated Christ, the more I loved him, the more I wanted to serve him. And even now... 
the thing that inspires me, that gets me up every morning to do ministry and to keep going even though there's all kinds of opposition against it, is because I love Jesus. When I think about what he's done for me, it just transforms and enlarges my heart and makes me want to serve him more. Fill your mind with Christ. Contemplate Christ and what he did. Set your mind not on the news, not on fleshly pursuits, not on your Amazon uh, basket, not on the things you can buy. Not on, set your mind on Christ. The second thing is, be grounded in grace. Whenever the law accuses you of sin or your conscience accuses you of sin or society accuses you, accuses you of sin, and it probably will be justified, Fall back on the truth of grace, that there's no condemnation for you. Jesus didn't come to condemn you. He came to save you and to absolve you. And go to him every time you've sinned. Go to him and confess your sin to him. And remember that he accepts you and he loves you and he forgives you. Sometimes he will also spank you because he loves you like that. But be grounded in grace Get legalism out of your thinking and just remember the graciousness of what Christ did for you. He did all of the work so that he could save you for free. Be grounded in grace. Don't ever be tricked by legalism, either for salvation or for sanctification. You can go to Jesus because his blood is more precious than any any sin that you've ever committed. So you know that his payment is bigger than any sin you can ever commit. So you can go to him every single time you sin. Even if it's, what did Jesus say about forgiveness? Seven, 70 times seven, right? That's how many times you not only have to go to your brother or sister, but that's how many times you can go to Christ himself. That's not because you've earned it, but, but that's because of grace. So be grounded by grace. And third, be persistent in prayer. Put everything to prayer. Don't be a foxhole Christian. A foxhole Christian is someone who just prays to the Lord in times of emergency. You live your life not thinking about Jesus ever until a major emergency happens, and then you bring that to prayer. That's fine if you do that. If you do that, if that's when you're praying, good. Pray in those moments. If that's when you're praying, good. Pray in those moments. But what's better is moment by moment, Give it up to the Lord and pray to him and just talk to your father. Um, Instead of trying to live your Christian life moment by moment according to your own plans, according to your own natural abilities, according, according to what you can do in and of yourself and only thinking about God as an afterthought, live moment by moment reckoning yourself dead to sin and alive to God And knowing that it's Christ living his life through you, rely on that, depend upon that. And one of the ways that you can do that is to make everything a matter of prayer and to just give it over to the Father in prayer. As you do that, the more you think of your life moment by moment as something that belongs to Christ and a moment in which you can trust Christ for, the more you will be occupying yourself with him. So those are three things you can do. Contemplate Christ, be grounded in grace, and be persistent in prayer for everything. So let me close with this. Um, The Reuters Institute, coming back to this idea of the news being negative, 87% of news, 
The Reuters Institute found that 42% of Americans actively avoid the news because it just either grinds them down emotionally or uh, they just don't believe it anymore. I don't know, I, I don't know how many people just don't, don't believe the news anymore. Because um, when, neg- when you focus on the negative, you can, might technically pass a fact check, but you can't pass a re- reality check because not all of reality, reality is negative all the time. So they can see the bias in the news, and so people just choose not to listen to it anymore. And in fact, what they found was 15% of Americans decided to disconnect from the news coverage entirely. Well, I think the takeaway for us is this. 100% of Christians could, should disconnect from the mindset of the flesh entirely. And just occupy yourself with the Spirit, with Christ. I um, hope this isn't too hoity-toity, but I like this quote from, from Hamlet in Shakespeare. He says, um, But orderly to end where I begun, our wills and fates do so contrary run. You have your will of what you want to happen, and you have the fate of what's going to happen. That our devices are still overthrown. Our thoughts are ours their ends, none of our own. Your thoughts belong to you, but the results of your life don't belong to you. And I think that's true. When your mind is set on the Spirit, then you can not only give your thoughts to Him, but you can also trust the ends to Him too. And instead of death, your life is going to be filled with life and peace. So I don't know how much time we have left here, but do we have time for questions, like five or five five minutes for comments, questions, or insights into this passage? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so what, what the what the Yeah, so what the commentators say is uh, I think most of them kind of think that Paul is trying to make uh, he 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 wants to create a parallel. So he's been talking about the law. So what's what's a poetic way of speaking about the opposite of the law? So he talks about the law of the spirit uh, of of life. And they think he probably what that is is probably a a synonym for the gospel. Here is you have the law here, and here's the gospel way. Here is this other way of living. Here's this other quote-unquote law. Um, but it seems to be more maybe uh, uh, supposed to be, it's supposed to just kind of create this literary parallel. But I'm going to be honest with you, I don't really know what that means. I'm not quite sure. Like, this is how the Spirit does things? Yeah, yeah. And I think that's... Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So here's, so here's one type of order, and here's our order of life in Christ Jesus. 
Yeah, yeah. I, I think I, clearly Paul is trying to say something like that, you know, but to pinpoint exactly. But I think we get the big idea for sure. It's a, the gospel, law and gospel are two different ways of living. And the gospel should not only just be your point of salvation, it should also, you should, your whole Christian life is based on the gospel, not on the law. The law is there to condemn you, but the gospel gives you life. Not just at the point of salvation, but also fullness of life, abundant life. John 10.10. I not only came to give them life, but give it more abundantly. So it's those two types of life and two types of ways of life. And it's either going to be under the Torah or it's going to be under the Spirit. Yeah. Any other comments or questions? All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father... I think part of the struggle here, Lord, is we hear that we need to occupy our minds with you, and the risk is we're just going to take that as another law that we need to fulfill. It's like, oh, now I've got to put it on my schedule to occupy myself with Jesus, to pray about these things. And I think the risk, Lord, is that it's just going to be another thing we're going to try to do in our own strength, and we're going to fail. But I pray, Lord, instead that instead of seeing it as a law that we need to fulfill, I pray, Lord, that you would enlarge hearts with the vision of your grace and a vision of your spirit and a vision of your son. And I pray, Lord, we take this as an invitation to have our minds just transformed by your word so that naturally we do want to occupy ourselves with our, our Lord and Savior, Jesus. I pray, Lord, you'd give us everyone here a hunger for your word. Give us a deeper hunger for Christ. Give us a deeper hunger to think like you, to think thoughts after you, to see things from a divine perspective and not just our human perspective. Give us a hunger, Lord, a deeper hunger for your, all, the, all your precepts in your word, but especially the gospel and the graciousness of all that Christ has done for us and all the benefits that he gives to us. Give us a hunger and an appreciation and love for your son just as, just as much as you love your son. I pray, Lord, you'd plant that love and grow that, that love within us. So that the love comes first and then our transformed lives come after. And I ask that for everybody here in the name of Jesus. Amen.